All right, let's turn back to Mark's Gospel this morning in chapter 14. We've come to a place in our study in the Gospel of Mark that introduces the climax of Christ's earthly ministry and it leads up to the most stupendous events of human history, his death and resurrection. Not many would agree with that assessment, but if Jesus Christ, the Son of God, had never stepped onto the stage of human history, we would all be destined to spend eternity in hell for all the sins and iniquities that we have committed throughout our whole life. The only hope of redemption, the gift of eternal life, and proper relationship with God is through the work of Christ's death and his resurrection. Now, all four Gospels, with, uh, uh, with their various accounts of the last week of uh, Christ's early ministry, dedicate at least one-fourth of their Gospel to this last week in Christ's life. Mark dedicates 37% of his Gospel to the last week, and then about half of that to Uh, the crucifixion and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. So it's obvious that all of these writers agreed that this was the apex, the the climax of his life and his purpose. And you remember that Jesus himself said, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Now, the first part of this chapter maps out some preliminary events leading up to Jesus' betrayal, his trials, his suffering, and his crucifixion. So today we're going to look at the first three of these in the verses that we read earlier. First of all, we see the preliminary uh, preparation for Jesus' betrayal. And we were reminded here of the continued effort of his enemies, the Jewish religious authorities, to arrest him and to kill him. They wanted to get rid of him. Judas, later, in verses 11 and 12, will become the means by which their nefarious plan is carried out. But couched between uh, these heinous plans, we have this narrative that displays a woman's great devotion toward Jesus And that stands in stark contrast to the wicked plot of Christ's enemies and uh, uh, the the heinous plans that uh, Judas is going to become involved in. Now finally, we see the Lord's instructions for the Passover meal, which will become the Last Supper with his disciples. Now we see from this that Jesus was really in command of this whole situation. Nothing caught him by surprise. Uh, He really was orchestrating things that would lead up to his own demise, knowing that he had to do that to save us from our sins. So uh, let's ask the Lord's blessing on his word this morning. Our Heavenly Father, we pray again that you would help us to understand your word Help us, Lord, to see that uh, Jesus knew what was going to happen. Lord, that he was involved in your plan of redemption for the human race, for each one of us. 
And Lord, that he made sure that plan would be carried out. Uh, Mankind can have their plans, but uh, behind the scenes, the Lord is always working. And we're thankful, Lord, for this story that we have of a woman who was devoted to Christ to the point where she gave a very expensive gift to bestow him uh, preliminary to his baptism, or excuse me, his, um, his uh, betrayal and then his burial. So, Lord, we just pray you'd help us to learn lessons of truth from this and help us realize again that Jesus became our Passover to save us from sin. We ask in Jesus' name and for his sake, amen. All right, the first thing I want us to see this morning from this passage is the preliminary preparation for Christ's betrayal and death. And we see here in the first two verses this continued plotting of the Jewish religious authorities. Now we're told after two days, it was the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So uh, this would be the Wednesday before Christ was crucified, the, the week that leads up to this Jewish event called uh, the, the, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. This was one of three annual feasts that uh, the men of Israel were actually commanded to come to Jerusalem and celebrate according to the Old Testament law. Uh, it didn't always happen that way, though, especially if you lived in the region of Galilee, where Jesus mainly ministered. And that may be one of the reasons why the residents of Judah uh, didn't get along with them that well and uh, uh, held them kind of in contempt. Now, the chief priests and scribes, these are Jewish religious leaders of the day. Uh, The priests led in worship. The scribes were men who knew the law upside down and backward, but weren't properly applying it. And they hated the Lord Jesus because he was threatening their power over the people. And the verb that's used here uh, indicates that their action and wanting to get rid of him was something that was consistent over time. The chief priests, the scribes, sought how they might take him by trickery and put him to death. So this has been going on for quite a bit of uh, time. We can actually go back to Mark's Gospel chapter 3 and see the first incident of it as uh, the Herodians uh, are upset with Jesus, and they want to get rid of him. And uh, Mark 3, 6, then the Pharisees went out and immediately plotted with the Herodians against him how they might destroy him. So this is way back really in the first year of his ministry. Then if you look at chapter 11 and verse 18, a little bit closer to the time at hand, we see the same type of thing. And the scribes and chief priests heard it and sought how they might destroy him, for they feared him, because all the people were astonished at his teaching. So again, they're trying to uh, make people not believe in him. And then chapter 12 and verse 12, after Jesus told a parable that was really against them, they sought to lay hands on him, but feared the multitude. So here we have the same thought here again that uh, they're trying to get rid of the Lord Jesus Christ, but there's that one thing holding them back that you see there in verse 2. Not during the feast, lest there be an uproar of the people. So they're afraid of how the people might respond if they openly took Christ 
and tried him and tried to get rid of him. Now, you remember Jesus was respected by the Galileans who came to Jerusalem for this feast. And he was also viewed at this time by the residents of Judah, uh, our residents of Judah and Jerusalem, because they thought his teaching was something that should be listened to. So they listened and they were amazed by what the, uh, he was telling them. Now, during these feast times in uh, the land of uh, Israel and Jerusalem, that city's population would kind of mushroom. Uh, some have estimated it could have been a quarter of a million people, but uh, usually folks think that perhaps maybe half or two-thirds of that amount, were, uh, amount of people were there. So you can understand why they would be upset, they would be afraid that if they made the people riot, they could get in a lot of trouble, especially with the Roman authorities. But then something happens that totally changes their mind about this whole situation. So we go down to verses 10 and 11, and we see how Judas took the initiative to come before them and betray the Lord Jesus. Now, in the Gospel of Mark, Judas is not a major character. Uh, he's only mentioned uh, when the Lord Jesus chooses the disciples and then a little bit later in this uh, chapter, he's going to be mentioned as the betrayer, and we'll see how that all plays out. But uh, we realize that whenever he's mentioned in the Gospels, it's always in association with betraying the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, he comes to them in verse 10. One of the twelve, he went to the chief priest in order to betray the Lord Jesus. And Mark doesn't give any details as to what motivated him to do this. And uh, there's really no other information here that he gives about the betrayal. If we go to the other Gospels, we find that Luke informs us that Satan entered him. And maybe that's all we really need to know. But Mark mentions that the rulers promised to give him money uh, for his deed Matthew tells us that when Judas came to them, he asked what they would give if he were to betray the Lord Jesus. And uh, we're told there that the price was 30 pieces of silver, pretty much a paltry price, thinking about who Jesus is. Uh, that was the price you would pay for a common slave uh, in the slave market of that day. Now, it seems Judas then did not really very highly um, uh, value the Lord Jesus. And that may, of course, been a reason or one of the reasons of his treachery. Also, he was probably disappointed that Jesus was not going to be the king he thought he was going to be. So he agrees to hand over the Lord Jesus to these people. And now he's going to seek an opportunity to do that. It's going to be... Uh, where uh, in a private place, it's going to be in the dark of night, and this is exactly what those priests wanted. So they're willing to change their plans and actually do it during this week of feasting. And they've been looking for this opportunity, and now one of Jesus' own disciples comes to help them out. So no wonder it's told us in verse 11 that when they heard this, they were glad. They were 
delighted their plans were going to work out after all. But then again, imagine these are supposed to be religious people. They're supposed to be the spiritual leaders of, uh, of Israel. And they have this sentiment, a sentiment of hatred and murder toward the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, in this most holy festival of the year. And it controls their hearts because they're rejecting everything Jesus has taught about himself and all the miracles he's done and all these things. Now, uh, no doubt, as they conspired with Judas, they found more things about Jesus that they may not have known previously, and they will eventually use those against the Lord Jesus to condemn him. Now, all of this was done, but it did not come as a surprise to the Lord Jesus. As a matter of fact, we can go to the Old Testament, the book of Psalms, chapter 41, verse 9. Uh, King David is prophesying there in a trial of his own that he was experiencing uh, something that would eventually happen to the Messiah, the anointed one. He said, even my own familiar friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. And we find that it will be Jesus himself who will actually send Judas out to do this dastardly deed at the Last Supper. So this is a preliminary preparation for Jesus to be arrested and tried and eventually executed. Now, couched between these uh, two activities in the beginning of this section and in the verses we just read, we have uh, another situation that stands in stark contrast to this plotting of the Jewish leaders and the betrayal of Judas. And this is a preliminary, uh, preliminary preparation for Jesus' burial. And we see here that there's a great act of devotion going on and the part of one of Jesus' followers. So let's take a look here at the scene beginning in verse 3. And being in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper, as he sat at the table, a woman came having an alabaster flask, a very costly oil of spikenard. Then she broke the flask and poured it on his head. All right, now John records that this incident actually occurred six days earlier, uh, just before the week of Passover. Mark places the incident here so he can show that contrast between the attitudes of people who hated the Lord Jesus and those who really loved him. And uh, we can see how different this situation is from the plot to get rid of the Lord Jesus. Um, we don't know very much about Simon, who is, uh, who is noted as the leper, other than this likely means he had been cleansed from leprosy, probably by the Lord Jesus Christ, because normally uh, in those days you wouldn't sit down and have dinner with somebody who had leprosy. Bethany was a small town on the uh, bottom uh, half of the Mount of Olives, a couple of miles uh, away from the city of Jerusalem. So he's uh, there, uh, there with these people, 
and they're having uh, a meal, and something very unusual happens uh, during this meal. First of all, their women usually would serve the men. The men would be re- reclining at a low table, didn't sit in chairs back then, uh, but in a banquet like this, the men would be placed around the table. They would be sitting with one elbow on the floor and the other one uh, reaching whatever was there for uh, eating. And the ladies, the women, uh, they would be bringing the food in and, and serving things of this nature. So what was unusual is that a woman would come in and do this kind of thing uh, at this kind of a banquet. So that's the first thing that's really kind of out of the ordinary. The second thing is uh, that although Mark does not name this person, John does. This is Mary, who is the brother of Lazarus and Martha. And we're also informed that they were present at this dinner. And you've got to remember that Lazarus was raised from the dead by Jesus. And here he is uh, eating dinner with these folks. And some people wanted to come just to see this man who was raised from the dead that they had heard about. So uh, again, an unusual type of situation. And Mary, we know, was very devoted to the Lord Jesus. Now, she has in her possession... Something that's called here an alabaster flask. That would have been a translucent container uh, used to store valuable uh, perfume or uh, valuable oil. And you ladies know if you uh, use perfume that they can have nice bottles that make it more attractive and they store that in there. And now you have spray bottles. You go squirt, squirt. But back then you couldn't do that. This container would have a long neck on it, and it would be sealed. And once you broke the neck to get the nectar out, whatever it was, you had to use the whole thing. And so uh, when she did this, it, it made the whole room smell very nice, and she pours it upon the Lord Jesus. Incidentally, this, this uh, spike nard was uh, from... Uh, an aromatic spice imported from India. So that's what made it so expensive. And it was probably a perfume type of oil because in those days, uh, oftentimes you would, uh, when a guest came to your home, you would wash their feet and then you would anoint their head with oil. That sounds kind of gross to us today, but it was actually refreshing back then when you walked around in the hot sun and you came in and the folks would do this for you. So she does this, and she pours it on the head of Jesus. John says she also poured it on her feet and washed his feet with her hair, her long hair. So again, she's doing something that is showing her devotion, her love for the Lord Jesus Christ. And when the disciples respond to it, they give the value of it in verse 5, 300 denarii. Now, how much was that? Well, you guys think about your, your day's wage. One denarii was a day's wage. So I don't know how much you make today, but let's say, say you make $150. We'll multiply that by 300 and you got an idea today of what that was worth. It was, all, it was about a year's worth of your wage. Take out the Sundays or, or back then the Sabbath day and the feast days. It's about a year's wage 
That's how much it's worth. And note, it's 10 times more than what uh, Judas valued when he took money to betray the Lord Jesus Christ. So to expend this very costly item on the Lord Jesus was a huge act of devotion. I'll never forget the title of a sermon preached by Dr. Bob Jones III uh, when I went to college there on this passage. When your very precious becomes least precious for the most precious. So this gift bestowed on Jesus was very precious. It was very costly. It had great value. But for Mary, it became least precious for the sake of Jesus who was the most precious person to her. Now, she could have sold that and kept the proceeds for herself. Most people would. Or she could have given some of it away and still made great profit from it. Or she could have kept it as insurance for some future time of need, but instead she poured it all on the head and feet of Jesus to demonstrate her love and appreciation. I wonder if that is the kind of devotion that we feel for the Lord Jesus, knowing all he's done for us to save us from our sins. Well, uh, as we see this as a great act of devotion, some of the people there uh, were pretty upset by what happened. They were very critical about what she had done. And we see that uh, this unusual and and uh, uh, expensive uh, act of devotion was looked down upon. You look here in verse uh, 5, well, back up to verse 4, but there were some who were indignant among themselves and said, why was this fragrant oil wasted? might have been sold for 300 denarii, given to the poor. And they criticized her sharply. Well, that word indignant is a very strong word. Uh, It indicates violent displeasure. I'm sure that outburst would have embarrassed Mary, made her look foolish, maybe feel foolish. And Matthew tells us that it was some of the disciples of Jesus that had this reaction. John says that it was actually Judas who headed the attack, and he informs us that it wasn't really because he cared for the poor, it's because he had the money bag and he was skimming off the top. So he informs us that Judas is also a thief besides a betrayer. So the disciples, again, are guilty of this spiritual dullness that we have seen of them over the journey through Mark's gospel. Now, wanting to use this huge sum to help the poor, well, that's a noble motive. But they missed the point of the whole action. Mary valued the Lord Jesus so deeply, she was willing to expend something of great value on him to honor him. She didn't really care how much it cost her or if there was something else she could do with that item. So the disciples, again, missed this whole Um, uh, act of devotion as Jesus explains a little bit later in his response. So let's take a look look at that beginning at verse 6. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a good work for me. 
So the emphasis was not so much on the value of the flask, but the fact that she gave it to Jesus. She expended it upon him. So Jesus puts their indignant reaction immediately to rest, and he asks, why are you troubling her? Why are you giving her a hard time? She's done something good for me. The word good there could also be translated beautiful. This was a beautiful action on her part. And he explains that there will always be poor people with you in the world. There are poor people in the world today. There's going to be many opportunities for you to help them. Uh, And the disciples, again, have not realized that Jesus is not always going to be with them. They haven't uh, picked up on that. He's announced to them that he's going to be delivered up. He's going to be mistreated. He's going to be killed. And he's going to be raised on the third day. But they still do not get this. And when it eventually unfolds, they're going to be shocked uh, at the events. Now, Mary, he goes on to say uh, in verse 8, she has done what she could. Well, literally, that means she did what she had, and we would translate that, we would render it, she gave all that she had. Mary's given all that she had. She's given her all for the sake of the Lord. She poured on his head and feet the most precious item that she owned. And she gave it all to express her love for him, her devotion for everything that he had taught, for everything he had done. And Jesus then interprets this as an anointing preliminary to his burial. In verse 8, she's come beforehand to anoint my body for burial, again suggesting his death. Now, I don't know how much Mary perceived. It's doubtful that she had that in mind when she anointed Jesus. But it may well be that she had more perception than the disciples did. You remember on a previous occasion, she sat at Jesus' feet to listen to his teaching while her sister was busy in the kitchen making a meal. And, and she certainly must have heard some predictions of his impending death from his disciples. Maybe Jesus even said that to the family. And she had witnessed her brother being raised from the dead after he was in the grave for four days. So did she perceive that something was going to happen very soon? And that's one of the reasons she did that. Well, we can only sur- surmise, but Jesus comments that assuredly I say to you, wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be told as a memorial to her. So Jesus took it in a certain way, and he makes that known to them. He knows that the gospel is not going to come to an end. It's actually just beginning. He's going to die. He'll have to die for the sins of uh, humanity, but he will be raised again. And that makes the gospel real. It makes it lasting. And it's going to be preached all over the world. Wherever that gospel is preached, this loving action is going to be in it. And here we are, 2,000 years later, talking about it. So that's how it, it perpetuates. And we can see how it all played out and how Mary's act was associated with Christ's burial, whether she fully realized that or not. 
Now, that leads us up here uh, to the last section here. And this is a preliminary preparation for the Passover meal. All right, so in verse 12, Now, on the first day of unleavened bread, when they killed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, Where do you want us to go and prepare that you may eat the Passover? So let's be reminded of what this was all about. What was the Passover? Well, Passover commemorated Israel's deliverance from Egypt many, many, many years ago. That was the greatest event in her history. You remember that uh, they were enslaved for four centuries. And uh, to bring them out of Egypt, the Lord sent the ten plagues upon the Egyptians. And the last plague was the death of the firstborn. And the only way you could escape the firstborn in your family from being slain by the death angel was to take that lamb and to uh, slaughter it and its life would go for yours. Its blood would be in place of yours and you would sprinkle it around the lintel of your door. And when the death angel came and he saw the blood applied, he would pass over your family. So that's where we get the idea of the Passover. Now, the meal consisted of unleavened bread, hence the week of unleavened bread, bitter herbs and the roasted lamb, because that's what they would do with their sacrifices. And it was to be eaten in haste as a remembrance of Israel being hastily thrust out of Egypt after the death angel came and took the lives of those firstborn. So this was a reenactment of the redemption of Israel from their bondage to the nation of Egypt. It also was a foreshadowing of the death of Christ as the redemption price of our deliverance from the bondage of sin. Blood is the symbol of life. Without blood, you cannot have life. And without the the shedding of blood, the Bible says there's no forgiveness of sin. There's no remission. So Jesus was willing to shed his own blood in our place so that we wouldn't have to die in our sins and pay the price of those sins. He paid the price for us. Now, the disciples are then instructed what to do as they're asked of this by uh, by. Uh, the disciples, as he's asked, uh, what, what do you want us to do? And so he explains down in verses 13 through 15. They're supposed to go into the city, and they're going to see a man carrying a pitcher of water. And we wonder, how in the world do they find this one man when there's thousands of people around? Well, for one thing, uh, the job of another job of the women of that day was to carry the water. The men didn't do this, the woman did, and she carried the water to a home, what they needed day by day. And uh, so to, to find a man doing it would be something unusual. And of course, we know the Lord being God could orchestrate this so they would meet this person as they went into the city. So that was the sign. They're to follow him, and when they come to the master's house, There's to say to the master of the house, the teacher, meaning Jesus, says, where's the guest room in which I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And then he would show them the upper room, which we've heard of. 
and it would be furnished, it would be made ready so that they could have the meal. Then the disciples would select the lamb, they would prepare the lamb, and uh, they would eat the meal together with the Lord Jesus. So his disciples go out, they come into the city, they found everything just like Jesus said, and they're able to prepare for that last meal with the Lord Jesus. They don't really know that at the time, but the Lord's orchestrated everything. So all along the way, since uh, about six months previous to this, as we look to the gospel story in Mark, Jesus has been uh, making sure that he will come to the place where he is crucified, he's raised again, and he uh, goes back into heaven. Uh, He began to announce this to his disciples six months earlier. They slowly begin their way down to Jerusalem so they can participate in this Passover feast. He's prepared his arrival for coming into the city. He's made provisions for this last meal, and we'll find that he will even send out Judas to betray him. So Jesus knew exactly what was happening He was not going to shirk from his mission to give his life for you and I. He knew the plan and cooperated with it, uh, even as Peter um, preached the first message in the book of Acts. And I just want to read a couple of verses to you from Acts chapter 2. This will be familiar to most of you. But this is what Peter preached after Jesus was raised from the dead and the Holy Spirit came upon his disciples. In verse 22, he's preaching to these men of Israel, some of whom may have been present uh, in the trials of the Lord Jesus. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, him being delivered by the determined purpose of, And foreknowledge of God, God determined this, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death. So they were responsible, but God orchestrated it all. So all these events are preliminary steps in the provision of his death and resurrection to redeem our souls. So what can we take away from this by way of some application? Well, first of all, uh, the chief priests and Judas had their plan to get rid of Jesus. But as we've seen, their plan was really God's plan all along. He just uses the evil actions of men uh, even to promote a purpose of this nature. And we would be wise to put our life and our plans in his hand as well. The only way we can do that is by receiving the Lord Jesus as our Savior, not rejecting him as these people did. We all have a choice to make about him, either reject him or receive him. And then secondly, how do you show your love and devotion to Christ? Do you even know him? Do you ever thank him for all he's done to save you from your sins? Do you ever tell him that you love him? Do you spend time with him in his word? Do you ever pray and talk to him? Do you obey his commandments? Jesus said, if you love me, obey my commandments. How precious is the Lord Jesus to you? Do you recognize him for who he is? The most precious gift we could ever receive.
If he's willing to die for you and for me to save us from sin and death and hell, then nothing should be more precious than the Lord Jesus. Our very precious, no matter what it is, should become least precious for the most precious. And then finally, let's remember something the Apostle Paul said later on. He said, for indeed, Christ our Passover was sacrificed for us. So Jesus is our Passover. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And just as that innocent lamb was slain historically in Old Testament times as a remembrance of Israel's uh, bondage, from, uh, bondage to and deliverance from Egypt, so the Lord Jesus became the sacrificial lamb of God that delivers us from the penalty and power of sin. So have you received Jesus as your Passover today? Let's ask God's blessing on his word. Heavenly Father, once again, we're thankful today that Jesus came, he lived, he died, he was raised again, and now he intercedes for everyone who will call upon him as their Savior and Lord. Lord, we just pray today that if there's someone here not sure of their relationship to you, that they would see that you love them by sending your Son into the world to die in their place, to provide forgiveness for their sin and the hope of eternal life with you in heaven. We're thankful, Lord, today for what Jesus has done. Help us to show our love and devotion to him by uh, spending time with you in, in, in the word of God, by being obedient to your commandments, by serving you in the world in which we live. We know, Lord, we need your help to do that. We pray for it. So, Lord, bless us with these thoughts today, we ask in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.